Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 96, Revelation, the end from seven perspectives. And in this episode, I would like to do something a little bit unique to our series in Revelation. I don't actually want to look at a specific passage. Instead, I want to tie in some things that we've been looking at and the way I've been interpreting Revelation during this entire series, something that's been constantly at work in the background in my own mind from a book I read years ago called More Than Conquerors, an interpretation of the book of Revelation by William Hendrickson, who makes a fascinating discovery and some fascinating observations in the first chapter or two of his book, which has sort of been tucked away in the back of my mind. And I realized that I use this a lot when I talk about Revelation, and it certainly helps me to interpret the book. And I thought it might be nice to share with you um, some of the pitfalls of the way Revelation is typically approached and then to bring in Hendrickson's ideas and to simply present them to you um, as simple ideas, not as definitive um, determinations for the best way to interpret this book, but certainly some guidelines to help us interpret it more effectively. And so I am excited. We'll use a movie illustration, maybe of a movie you've never heard of, and I'll just talk my way through it on this week's episode, but I think it will prove to be helpful for you. So let's just jump right into it. As we begin this week's episode, I did want to point out for those who have been following along with this podcast since its inception, which was September 20th of 2018, You do realize that we are rapidly approaching two full years of unbinding the Bible. And that's that's exciting to me, and that's exciting, I know, for many of you who have been listening on this whole way. Um, We're on episode 96. I I have actually done more than 100 episodes. Some of them, like the By the Book episode, aren't actually numbered, and neither are the some of the bonus episodes. But besides all that, it's been quite a lot of fun. And I really had no idea we'd be in Revelation even after a year or still in Revelation a year later. So um, anyways, it's proven to be a lot of fun for me just to work out a lot of my own thoughts. And that's kind of what I wanted to do on this episode as well. As I shared in the introduction, I don't really have a theme, a passage rather, to talk about, but I wanted to sort of talk about a theme. And that is something that I, like I said, is, is sort of tucked away in the background of my mind, but I don't often think about talking about it too much. And so I just wanted to present it with you, um, to you today rather, and just to let you understand, one of the points that Hendrickson points out in his book is that he talks about what he calls parallel sections of the book of Revelation. And we've alluded to this numerous times, but the way Hendrickson actually breaks it down is is he is not um, imagining these kinds of things. And, and I think it would be okay to disagree with him here. I, I don't know that this is ironclad proof of exactly the way John intended for this book to work, but there's certainly some major um, coincidences, if we want to look at them in that way, that I do think help us to understand the book a little bit better. But Hendrickson recognizes that John is a lover of the number seven, and John uses sevens all the time. Um, He uses the number 28 a lot in reference to the lamb. In fact, the word lamb appears 28 times in the book, which we know is just seven times four And the Lamb's working, completed work of the number seven times four, which is his work for all of the nations, every tribe, language, people, and nation, as is often repeated in that fourfold way throughout Revelation. 
But Hendrickson noticed that the book itself, the 22 chapters that make up the book, are also broken down, in a sense, in seven sections. And they're sections that have coherence within themselves and that actually tell the same story, but from different angles or from different perspectives. And the passage that's most familiar to most people in Revelation would be the first section, and that is simply Christ in the midst of his lampstands, which we looked at at the beginning, chapters 1, 2, and 3. In fact, it's it's such a familiar part to us that we oftentimes think if those who hold to a, a rapture of the church or believe that you know these events described in Revelation are happening at a time when we're no longer around, that typically stems from, from a couple reasons. The first is that people are familiar with the first few chapters. It sounds similar to us. Like it sounds like a letter Paul might have written to a church or James or, or John might have written a letter to a church. And so those sound familiar to us. Some of the things we start to see in chapters four, five, six, and seven seem otherworldly. And so we imagine that that's just what they are. They're happening in the future sometime later. But another reason why we tend to do this is because when we read Revelation, many, many people assume that chronological order is what John would have most certainly been concerned with and is therefore giving us a chronological ordering of events as they are going to occur. And without going into a lot of detail, I hope you realize by now that, that I don't read Revelation that way, and I don't think it's meant to be read that way. In fact, what you'll notice and have noticed if you've listened in the series is that I feel very comfortable going forward in the book, going backwards in the book, helping certain terms we read and heard about earlier in the book, interpreting the ones we read about later, and then what we hear explained later, going back to give us interpretations of what's come before before and after happening in terms of the way in which we read the book, but not before and after in terms of what actually will happen before or after something else. And I think Hendrickson points this out in a great way because he's showing us that what's happening in these sections are they're just parallel with one another. They're happening, but in greater intensity. And so he breaks the book down into seven sections, and he simply says, Christ in the midst of his lampstands, that's chapters one, two, and three. You then have the vision of heaven and the seals, chapters four through seven. You have in chapters eight through 11, the seven trumpets. You have in chapters 12 to 14, which we just finished in the book, um, looking at in the podcast, you have the persecuting dragon. Then in, in verse, in chapters 15 and 16, you have the seven bowls. Chapter 17 to 19, you have the fall of Babylon. In chapter 20 to 22, you have the great consummation. So let, let me repeat those just in, in quicker form. You have Christ in the midst of his lampstands. You have the vision of heaven and the seals, the seven trumpets, the persecuting dragon, the seven bowls, the fall of Babylon, and the great consummation. And what's stunning about what Hendrickson is pointing out is that he talks about these sections as not only being parallel, but in a very in a very strong sense, overlapping with one another. And it, it might help you to think about it in terms of um, many people know about the the Chinese nesting dolls. You, you might see some at your grandparents' house, or you might see some in an antique store. You might have some in your own house, where you've got this little round shaped figure that's like an oblong shape and it, it's all painted and decorative. And if you pull it off in the middle, 
there'll be a separation, kind of like an Easter egg idea, but you pull it off and there's another smaller nesting doll that looks the same, only it's slightly smaller, fitting inside the first one. And then if you pull that one in half, you find another one smaller on the inside. If you can imagine Revelation doing that, except in reverse. And by in reverse, what I mean is when you pull the first nesting doll um, top off and set it down, the nesting doll that's inside that one is not smaller than the first one. It's bigger. And the more you go into the middle, the more you, the deeper you go, the more intense things get until the end where the full expression of everything glorious has finally been revealed. And we see this, I think the easiest way to, to make sense of this is to realize that even when we read the first um, few chapters of the book, we, we read this section of Christ in the midst of his lampstands and each of the addresses to the churches addresses Christ as he is in the midst of his lampstands. We know he gives us a description of himself, he, which we know then from chapters four to seven is ultimately who Jesus is and who he's revealed to be in later on in the book. Well, then you have the announcement of the way people are living or choosing to live and whether that's working out well. Sometimes that's a result of, of the beast's activity in the world that is encouraging or discouraging the church from witnessing well or encouraging them to cave in their faithful witness to him. But then you have a promise to those who are going to conquer. And you also sometimes have a rebuke of some, some things that are going to happen to these churches if they do not respond positively. And then you end each of the addresses to the seven churches with a promise of what those who do conquer will receive or will experience um, as you know, like an eternal reward. And what's really interesting is if you walk through each of the letters in that way, you find that the book as a whole is the exact same mirror representation of what each of the seven letters are in the way that you read them. The book as a whole starts with Christ in the midst of his lampstands, but then gives a vision of heaven and who this Christ really is, announcing the coming judgment of the Lord. It talks about the persecuting dragon. I mean, some of the letters to the churches straight up talk about, you know, the throne of Satan and um, we know that this is where you live and you need to be aware of this reality. And then the coming judgment of God for those who don't repent. Why is this important for the churches to hear? Well, because the bowls of God's wrath are coming in chapters 15 to 16. And eventually the Lord will judge Babylon as we know he will do in chapters 17 to 19. And if any of the churches are caught up in that sin and waywardness and idolatry and consumerism and and oppression or what have you, they will be judged as well. And then the final three chapters, the great consummation, the final three chapters of Revelation are mirror images of the very things that Jesus promises the faithful will receive if they in fact endure to the end. And a simple reading of Revelation would show you that in the last several chapters of the book, all of the promises that Jesus makes to the churches about what they will receive if they are faithful unto the end, they in fact receive. And the church is showered with the white robes and the, the white stone and, and the tree of life and all of these images that were painted for them in the first several chapters. And so at several episodes along the way, and, and I really, to be honest with you, can't remember which ones. I even look back through some of my notes and I have way too many notes to make sense of it all. But at some point in the podcast, I've referenced a few things that I think would be helpful. And one of the easiest to, to see 
is that in chapter four, for instance, in this vision of heaven and the seals, we saw in verse five that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And we spent a lot of time talking about this is a manifestation. This is like a theophany. This is when the Lord's presence comes to bear on a situation. There's fire, there's lightning, there's thunder, you know, what have you. Well, in chapter eight, when we are getting ready to talk about the seventh seal, we have uh, this description in verse five, which it comes up in the second, um, the third section, rather, the seven trumpets, chapters eight through 11. We have this idea on the seventh seal of there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Well, that's really interesting because the first three descriptors given about the, on the seventh seal are identical to the ones that come from the throne. Only at the end of the seventh seal, an earthquake is added to the rumblings, the, the, the peals of thunder, and the flashes of lightning. And so it's like our nesting dolls again. The, the first image that we see in Revelation is of the, of the throne in heaven. And then we open up that nesting doll and look inside that one. And what do we find? We find the same description, only bigger, and an earthquake has been added. And then when you come to the seventh trumpet, it says there were flashes of lightning. This is in Revelation eleven nineteen. To the seventh trumpet, it says there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. Oh, well, there's the same four descriptions that we just got from the seventh seal, which shared the first three descriptions from the throne in heaven. But now in the seventh trumpet, we're adding a fifth element and it involves heavy hail. Well, then you come to the seventh bowl. And in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 18 to 21, here's what it says. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. Now we're told in Revelation that with the bowls, the wrath of God is finished. And I alluded in another episode, again, I can't remember which one, that the seals, we are told, devastate one-fourth of the earth. In chapter 8 and 9, we are told that the trumpets bring judgment, suspiciously enough, on some of the same places that the seals do, only they affect a third of the earth. In chapter 10, John is told to write down what the seven thunders, to listen to what the seven thunders have sounded, but do not write it down. And we know that based upon the, the nature of, of the, you know, the, the fractional increase that's happening in the book, we know that the seals affect a quarter of the earth, the trumpets affect a third of the earth, the, the thunders were not told what they contain at all, but in the bowls we're told that all of God's wrath is going to be fully poured out. And what that communicates to me and others like Hendrickson and some of the other commentators that I look at is that most likely the thunders were going to affect one half of the earth and that the bowls, in fact, affect the entire thing. But what is happening in each one of these situations is that the intensity the bigness, the seriousness, the, well, intensity is really the best word I can think to describe it, is simply increasing with each unveiling of the issue. 
And when you look at the trumpets in comparison to the bowls, the trumpet judgments that affect the earth um, or that, that affect a third of the earth or the sky or the sea or what have you, the bowl judgments do something very similar only with more intensity. In fact, if you compare the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, you see that the first trumpet affects the earth and so does the first bowl. The second trumpet affects the sea, so does the second bowl. The third trumpet refers to the rivers, as does the third bowl. And the fourth in both cases refers to the sun. The fifth trumpet and bowl refer to the pit of the abyss or to the throne of the beast. And the sixth refers to the Euphrates River. And the seventh refers to the second coming in judgment. And we've seen this as well. If you remember back to chapter 6, after looking through the seals and then listening to the martyrs under the altar, you know that in when the fifth seal, I'm sorry, when the sixth seal is opened, we got this explanation of horrific judgment coming on the earth. I mean, we, we read about it in chapter six and it talked about every mountain is fleeing to its place and every island is, is, is running away and men are hiding in caves and in rocks of the ground saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Chapter 6 in Revelation is very easily a description of the end. It's an end. The judgment of the, the wrath of God and the Lamb are coming. And if you keep reading through the rest of the book, many of the things in chapter 6 that were identified as being destroyed and people running under cover, we saw that in chapter 7, we get an answer to the kinds of people who can stand in the presence of God and the Lamb. But we will see at various points through the book that even when like all the green grass is burned up by one of the trumpets, several sections later we're told that the hornets, that these, you know, stinging scorpions are going to come from, you know, from, uh, or locusts rather, not hornets, locusts are going to come and they're not to harm the, gra the grass of the earth. Well, you know, if all the green grass was already burned up, then how is there any grass left for the locust not to eat? You know, th this dips a little bit in, I guess, to the idea of whether we interpret this literally or whether we interpret it symbolically. But the point, I think, remains, and that is, even as you get to the sections of the, the, the vision of the seals and of the trumpets, when you get to the seventh seal in chapter 8, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then you see that the seventh seal itself opens up the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is an announcement of the seven bowls. It's our nesting dolls illustration all over again. It's an illustration of the fact that with each new development, the intensity increases. And the call for the church to be faithful in the midst of all of it, as we've seen particularly in chapter 11, was the call to realize what judgment alone cannot produce is the repentance of the nations the church's faithful witness in the middle of that oppression is something that can convert the nations. And yet in the chapters that we are about ready to get into in the book of Revelation, namely chapters 15, 16, and 17, we're going to see very clearly that there still will come a point when not even the self-sacrificial witness of the church will be able to turn the hearts of the wicked. And so they will in fact face judgment and it is precisely in that judgment being explained where John will take great pains to make sure that the church 
is not caught up on the wrong side of righteousness and on justice. It's important that we understand this. And so as I've been teaching through the book, I I realize that I do this all the time. When I'm explaining what is happening with the persecuting dragon and the, the Christian story retold, you know, I'm not looking at this as a futuristic moment. This is an explanation of why the churches in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 are sometimes under attack and sometimes um, believing that compromising their faith is the way to go. Well, that's simply Revelation 12 to 14 and revealing the dragon to us and revealing who the dragon works behind, and that is the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. And then now this continual talk that we've been seeing repeatedly now of those who have the mark of the beast, we're going to continue to see that right on through chapters 15 and 16. We've got our basis now for why we're believing that this is true, but it helps to explain other sections of the book, not because those events will happen later, but simply because John is explaining them later. And right after we take a break, I'm going to give you a movie illustration, which I think might help to clear this up a little bit. Now, there is a movie that I came across, I don't know, a handful of years ago. It's actually a movie from 2008 called Vantage Point, and it stars Dennis Quaid and Matthew Fox and several other um, you know, several other actors and I, and I'm not a movie critic. Um, my two teenage boys would be the first to tell you that I'm not a movie critic. In fact, I'm deplorable at things like, um, critiquing movies appropriately, apparently. Um, and this particular movie, you know, received a 34% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, you know, a way of critics, um, judging movies. Although I will say that it got, you know, like an 84% of people, you know, liked the movie. So at least I'm, I'm in the 84%, even though I'm not a faithful critic. But all of that to say, this movie was a, a really fun one to me. And um, it relates a bit into what I'm talking about here. And so if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, let me give you just a brief synopsis. The movie itself is kind of an action thriller, and it, it's about an hour and a half long. But it's the, the U.S. president is speaking at an event in Spain and there's some terrorist concerns that are happening and along the way terrorist event of sorts takes place and the president is shot. This is in the very opening scene of the movie. I mean it jumps right in and it just it sucks you in as the viewer. You just can't quite comprehend what this would do to the world scene if such a thing actually happened in the way that it is portrayed. But the movie itself is called Vantage Point because what happens at that opening scene is that you as the viewer are being drawn in to see this assassination um, on the president from a particular vantage point. And you're introduced briefly to several characters in the film. And then after a clip of just several minutes goes by, the, the, the video that you are watching on the television freeze frames – does this strange reversal where the explosion, things you know, like a bomb had actually gone off after the assassination, just there's a bunch of chaos and panic and nobody knows what's going on, who's doing it, who's responsible, what should you be thinking right now? And the, the frame reverses itself and then it replays all over again from the perspective of a different bystander. There are a CIA agent has his perspective. There's a man there who just has a camera and who's just excited to be there and taking everything in. 
there's a, a woman there with a small child and they get separated for a minute in the hustle and bustle. And so you see it from the panicked mother's perspective. And the movie itself, while being an hour and a half long, is nothing more than seven or maybe eight different vantage points that you get. And as the movie goes on, you are piecing together with the investigators exactly what has happened, who's responsible, and how do they catch the criminal. And so what's really interesting about the movie is while it is an hour and a half long, the events of the movie take place in about a two to three minute time frame. Again, you've got a little bit of that backstory, but the event itself, the assassination, some bombs going off, some other things, I'll leave it to you to, to go rent the movie. It, it is fun. I, I found it enjoyable myself, even though my boys you know, rolled their eyes and told me that John Wick has better action or something to that effect. I'm not sure. But regardless, the movie itself doesn't take place over a long period of time, but each layer that is added onto the one that came before it clarifies the picture for the viewer. It clarifies reality for the viewer. And I'd like to submit today that we would do, it would be tremendously valuable for us to realize that the more perspectives we get on any one thing, the better our understanding of that reality might be. And so for Revelation, I think it's beautiful. Revelation, I think, is this reverse nesting dolls. They are all of these vantage points. Sometimes you've got a vantage point of what's taking place on the earth. Sometimes you have a vantage point of what's taking place in the heavens. Sometimes the intensity of the Lord's coming is freaky to certain people, but it's a glorious, hope-filled day for others. Those are vantage points. And knowing who is telling their perspective as you read through the book is just as important as knowing what it is that they're trying to describe because people can be terrified of the coming of God and of the Lamb. But there can be others who are going to be overjoyed when they see his coming. That's a very different perspective. But when taken together, they help us to fill out how it is that the Lord's coming can be both a blessing and seen as a potential curse, which is oftentimes how people view that. And so I think that that movie is helpful. I mean, I, I guess I'm giving you a movie recommendation. I, I know I don't do that often. Maybe I should. Um, but I think it's just helpful. It's helpful for you as you're reading the book to realize that the goal that John has in mind is not entirely chronological. Some things, you know, the second trumpet may come after the first. I get it. But looking at where the trumpets are in relation to the seals, in relation to the bowls, and how the Lord is going to choose to judge, he's bringing judgment all through the book. Chapter 11 is another section like that in the book where you read it and you would think that is the end. And then all of the faithful are gathered around the lamb and he's encouraging them by bringing them to springs of living water. I mean, that is a euphoric picture of what the end will be. It's just a smaller version of it than what Revelation 22 will describe. But what that means is that the events in chapter 12 don't happen after the events of chapter 11. They're simply bringing us a new, a new vantage point. They're giving us now the big picture. We saw the church struggling against you know, the forces of men on earth in chapters 1 to 11, but now we're going to see that that struggle is actually part of a much, much bigger and longer and more ancient struggle between the ways of God and the ways of Satan. So it enlarges the view. 
And then when we come right back into chapter 15, we're going to continue to see more judgment that is unleashed, but knowing where the church is and what their role is in the middle of this judgment, the church has a dual role. We are to maintain our faithful witness to the lamb unto death if necessary and constantly guard ourselves from getting caught up in the ways of Babylon because if we don't, we will be part of the judgment of God when his presence comes again. So reading Revelation like this, watching a movie like Vantage Point, they're helpful. They're helpful ways of for us to be able to navigate through what is John describing here? How might this relate to something that I've read before or something that I've not yet read? And I do think he gives us clues along the way, and I will do my best to keep pointing those clues out so that you don't feel lost. But this idea that we've got the end from seven perspectives or the vantage points, I think is a helpful one. It has clarified a lot of the ways that I understand this book. And again, that doesn't mean that I'm right, but I'm trying my best to bring us back to what the Old Testament said, what the New Testament said, and how the book itself seems to explain itself in the various explanations it gives for the symbols that it uses. And so um, that's all the time I have for this week. This wasn't a lot to cover, but it was enough for a week. And so I'm thankful for you listeners. I'm thankful for your questions, for your comments. Feel free to reach out to me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram, the Unbinding the Bible podcast, or you can feel free to support the podcast on a monthly basis if that's something that interests you. But I would love to hear from you. I'd love to interact with you in any way that we can. Thank you so much for tuning in and have a great week.